Amen. Thank you, Chris. Good morning, Grace Church. How are you? It's good to see you on this three-day weekend. You guys are the real Christians coming to church on the three-day weekend. That's just a little joke. Don't tell your friends. If you're watching online, I didn't mean that. It's just a little joke. If you're having fun with family, we're happy for you. We are. We're really happy that you're somewhere else. Uh, All right, all right. If you have a Bible, would you grab it and turn to Acts chapter 9? We'll be there in just a moment. Um, A quick update on the student building. Scott mentioned there's going to be some free tacos for the college kids. Uh, We've been doing a lot of work this summer on the student building, so after service, you're free to go and to check out uh, what it looks like. The room on the left is where we hid all the mess, so you can't go into that room. You ever had a party and you're like, don't go in that room. Okay, so don't go in the room on the left, uh, but on the right, you can see some of the updates. We are thrilled at what God's doing in the next generation, and this Wednesday night, it will be full of youth kids, Awana kids, and and all this going on. So, uh, Fun, fun, fun stuff happening over there. You should, should go check it out. Uh, all right, Acts chapter 9. Um, as I was getting into this text this week, I was, I was reminded of something. Uh, when I, I was a kid, I remember I was about 10 years old. We moved to a different house. I was in the fourth grade. And something changed in me at 10 years old where I would get in bed at night and start just feeling overwhelmed by the fear of death at 10 years old. Right? So uh, just be terrified, paralyzed about the idea of eternity I would lay in bed, and my mind would just start to wander about like this forever, never-ending nothingness. And I would just sit there and think about that at 10 years old. I don't know if you were like me. And the thermostat for our house was in the hallway, and the only way I could solve my problems was go out in the hallway, flip on the air conditioner, because it was super loud by my room, and go back in bed and try to fall asleep before the air conditioner kicked back off again. And so that's how I would do as a kid. I would be terrified, flip on the AC, go back to my bed. Uh, and in the morning, my parents would be like, who keeps on turning the air conditioner on? I'm like, just your 10-year-old son fighting death in his bedroom at night. That's me. Um, the air conditioner saving my life. So I would get overwhelmed and feel panic and, and just gripped by fear. And this happened to me at 10. It didn't happen all the time, but it certainly happened. And maybe this has happened to you. I don't know if this is typical. But when you look at every culture throughout history, there, there's some beliefs in the afterlife. Everyone has had to figure out, how do we face off against the greatest enemy of all, the enemy called death? Perhaps the oldest question in the whole world was posed by Job in the book of Job, which is, uh, if man dies, shall man ever live again? These, these are the big questions. And, and as you look at archaeology throughout history, every culture has tried to answer this. They've put some hope that life survives the grave. Uh, The Egyptians built massive tombs and pyramids, and they gave the burial site things inside of there to be used in the next life. Uh, The American Indians had a vision of the happy hunting ground to come. The Northmen uh, had a vision of Valhalla. The Greeks, they they talked about the shadowy underworld in Hades. The Hindus thought about reincarnation. In Islam, there's the great day of judgment. In morality, you have karma, which is basically what goes around comes around in this life, and what goes around comes around in the next life. So everyone is wrestling with this question, and, and it begs the question, what, is, what does Christianity teach about this? What does it teach about life and death and the afterlife? Is there an answer to the question, if a man dies, shall he live again? Well, in Acts chapter 9, we're going to get uh, a sign that points us to the answer. And so I want to read this to us, and then we'll jump in. Uh, by way of reminder, this is the early church taking the gospel from Jerusalem, Judea, to the ends of the earth. We're following the apostle Peter at this point in verse 32. He's traveling around, and it says this. As Peter traveled about the country, he went to visit the Lord's people who lived in Lydda. 
And there he found a man named Aeneas who was paralyzed and he had been bedridden for eight years. Aeneas, Peter said to him, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and roll your mat. Immediately Aeneas got up. And all those who lived in Lydda and Sharon, they saw him and they turned to the Lord. In Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha. In Greek, her name is Dorcas. And she was always doing good and helping the poor. About that time, she became sick and died, and her body was washed and placed in an upstairs room. Little was near Joppa. It's like nine miles away from each other. So when the disciples heard that Peter was in Lydda, they sent two men to him and urged him, Please come at once. Peter went with them, and when he arrived, he was taken upstairs to the room. All the widows stood around him crying and showing him the robes and other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was with them. Peter sent them all out of the room. And then he got down on his knees, and he prayed, and he turned towards the dead woman, and he said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes, and seeing Peter, she sat up. He, looked her, he took her by the hand, he helped her to her feet, and then he called for the believers, especially the widows, and presented her to them alive. This became known all over Joppa, and many people believed in the Lord. Peter stayed in Joppa for some time with a tanner named Simon. So this event is a couple of years after the resurrection of Christ, two to three years after, so the story is moving on. This is the ninth recorded resurrection in the Bible. It's the only resurrection uh, attributed to Peter. Paul, we met Paul in the last chapter. He used to be Saul, but he was transformed with an encounter with Jesus, becomes Paul, the apostle. He has the 10th recorded resurrection later in the book of Acts. Uh, And the story is Paul is preaching, and a young man is sitting in the window, and he falls asleep during Paul's sermon. This is is a true story. Falls asleep, falls out of the building, lands on the ground, and dies. Paul says, hang on, church, real quick, walks downstairs, raises this brother from the dead, brings him back in, and keeps preaching. So that, <laughs> if you die during the sermon, we will resurrect you and just keep the sermon going. That's the principle of the story. The sermon must go on, even if it means resurrection. That's a true story. Look it up. It happened. So in Acts chapter 9, there's a disciple named Tabitha who's passed away. And when they talk about her, they say she always does good and takes care of the poor, and she falls ill. What a, what a great thing to say about them. Now, a few weeks ago, we talked about the widows that were being overlooked in the distribution of food, and they were the Greek widows and how that wasn't cool. And now here you have what some historians say is a Greek widow named Tabitha, who's a disciple of Jesus, who's serving with other widows, taking care of the poor, and, and now she's passed away. And Luke mentions twice that the widows prepared her body, the widows were her community when she's raised from the dead. Peter says, go get the widows and bring them back. And so this is the story in Acts 9. This is almost identical to Mark chapter 5 and how Jesus raises Jairus' daughter from the dead. He shows up in the room, tells everybody, get out of here. She's not actually dead. She's asleep. And when they're gone, Jesus and Peter pray, and then they turn to a person who's no longer breathing, no longer has a heartbeat, no longer has brain activity, no longer has blood flow. They are completely dead. And Jesus in Mark 5 and Peter in Acts chapter 9 say two simple words to a dead person. They say, get up. And then the person gets up. Like death reverses course immediately. Like this is, this is remarkable. I think we hear this and just kind of move on from the story. But this is crazy. If you left here, went to a funeral home somewhere in San Diego and said, everybody get out of here. Get out. And then walked up to a casket where there was somebody being prepared for burial, and you told them, well, first you prayed, and then you told them, get up. They got out of the casket, and then you walked back into the lobby where everybody was. That would be on every news station tomorrow. This is absolutely remarkable. 
What kind of power can speak to death and death obeys it? Get up. Okay, I'll, I'll get up. Can you imagine that kind of power? So let me, let me remind us of something we learned back in the Gospel of Mark when we went through it. Every time Jesus performed a healing, it was not really just about the healing. It was also about another portion that was being pointed to. It had double meaning. So it's, it is about the healing, and it's not about the healing. There's a greater implication at stake. Every miracle is a sign, and a sign points to something. And the sign is pointing to a future reality that is breaking into the current reality. It's this already not yet. So Jesus comes into the world as the rightful king of the kingdom. And in the kingdom of Jesus, there is no uh, lameness. So people can stand up and walk. There is no deafness in the kingdom. There is no blindness in the kingdom. So Jesus heals people for their healing physically, but also to communicate that there is available now what will eternally be available later. There's something happening now, and that's what's going on. And in the miracle of Acts chapter 9, the resurrection of Tabitha is pointing to one of the most glorious truths in the world, that there is a power that can reverse death itself. There is a power greater than death itself. There is a power that can set you free from the fear of death, the grip of death. The results of death can be reversed. And this is great news. This is the best news in the world. But in order to attain this news, there's a path you must go through, a sequence you must follow. So I want to take the rest of our time to talk about the theology of the resurrection and the implications it has on us. And I must admit that in order to get to the good news, you must process through the bad news because this is a sequence. And so, in other words, to talk about resurrection, that implies death. That implies death. This is uh, what theologian Tim Keller calls the offense of the gospel. In order to get to the good news of the gospel, you must walk through the offense of the gospel. And so here, here it is. First, first thing we must recognize is this. Church, I love you, but death has claim on you. Death has claim on you. In other words, if death took you to court and brought you before a righteous judge, death could say to that judge, hey, they, they belong to me. They're mine, and the judge would say, you're right. We read this in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, the wages of sin is death. Therefore, if you are a sinner, and if I am a sinner, death has a rightful claim on me. The wages of Starbucks is money, $16.50 an hour in California. I looked it up. If you make more than that, good for you, Starbucks employee. You're above the national average. Way to go. But if you make brown sugar, oat milkshake, and espressos for a living, they pay you with money. The wages of Starbucks is money. That's great. I do this. I get that. I do this. I get that. In the same way this applies to sin, I do sin, I get death. It has a rightful claim on me. Jesus' little brother, James, writes about this in James chapter 1. He says, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desires and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when it's full grown, it gives birth to death. So you and I have been enticed by sin, we've been tempted, and if you have given way to sin, then you have given way to death. 
Death could call the insurance company and plead their case, and the insurance company would respond, my God, this is the greatest insurance claim I have ever heard in my whole life. I will be right there right away to take care of what's going on. I'll send someone over because you have no case against death. And the, the response we have to this, and a lot of people have said this, is this is a famous quote. I can't find out who actually said this quote, but one of the most famous quotes is, don't take life too seriously. No one makes it out alive. Don't take life too seriously. No one makes it out alive. Um, listen to me. That's not comforting at all. I don't know who's saying these things, but that's not comforting. Death is not a good thing. It's not a good thing. Even to my kids, like the idea of heaven and eternity with God, it's not very comforting to their minds because they don't want to go through death. My, my daughter, Lucy, was telling Amy and I, uh, she's like, I don't want to go to heaven. And we're like, you don't want to go to heaven? What's wrong with going to heaven? Like, how come you don't want to go to heaven? And she's like, because I would rather go to China. Like, I, I want to go to China, not heaven. And we're like, babe, this isn't an either-or thing. Like, you can get both. And she's like, well, you know, if I have to choose, I'm going to choose China, not, not heaven, because we're like, we're planning a trip to one day go to China. And she's like, I'd rather do that than this. And, and it's in her mind, she's like, let's, let's not do death. That, that's too hard. And so I, I get it. This, this is heavy. Um, about a few years ago, Chuck Norris jokes were really popular, like you would make Chuck Norris jokes. And probably my favorite Chuck Norris joke is that uh, Chuck Norris died 10 years ago, but the Grim Reaper is too afraid to tell him. <laughs> okay, I'm just trying to keep it light because of how heavy this is. Like, to say death has claim on you is no small thing, but it, it does. And there's, listen, there's nothing you can do about it. Nothing. Not only is there nothing you can do about it, all the things you try are in vain. There's no fountain of youth. You can work out. You, sh- you should work out. It ain't going to help. You can eat healthy. You should eat healthy. I'm working on it. I hate vegetables, but I'm working on it, right? Like, you should eat healthy. Uh, it- it's not going to help. No matter what you do, gravity is going to win eventually, and you're going to die. There's nothing you can do about it. And it's even worse than that. It's-, it's not just naturally that it has a hold on you. Supernaturally, death has a hold on you. We look at the brokenness all around us, and there's a supernatural component to that that we can do nothing about. The reason you can't save yourself is because you're supernaturally enslaved by death, not just naturally enslaved by death. It's a power bigger than you can imagine. Because since the Garden of Eden, when sin entered the world, death came with it. But you and I, we're not like the rest of creation. You and I have been made in the image of God. So we have been created to be with God eternally. We've been created to know God. The book of Ecclesiastes says eternity has been set in our heart. So we long for everlasting life. And when we look around at this world, we are not at peace. Because we long for the shalom, the real peace that Adam and Eve had in the garden. And we, we try to find things that bring us peace, but ultimately they're sandcastles. They lead to more chaos, more anxiety, more turmoil. None of them satisfy. It's because eternity has been put in our heart. And this is the beautiful truth that, yes, death has a claim on you. But you were not designed to make peace with death. Death is your enemy. Inside of you, you were not designed. You know, and I know, that this is not the way it's supposed to be. We know it's not the way it's supposed to be. And we go, maybe you go to a funeral and you hear the, the most universally said thing at a funeral is like, man, rest in peace. I hope you rest in peace. And something inside of you goes, I don't like that. I don't think that's true. That death is my enemy. I I make no peace with death. You, You probably felt that, especially if you've lost a loved one. It's not supposed to be this way. 
And the shortest verse in the whole Bible, if you want to memorize a verse today, the shortest verse in the whole Bible is two words. Jesus wept. Leave church and be like, guys, I memorized the verse today. Jesus wept. The, why did Jesus weep? He's, he's weeping when his childhood friend Lazarus dies. He goes back to, to where Lazarus lives. The sisters run out, tells him he's dead. Jesus weeps. Now listen to me. A few verses later, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. He walks to the tomb, says, Lazarus, come out. That brother walks out of the tomb wearing his grave clothes. Like, that's in the story. But on the journey to, to the resurrection, Jesus weeps. Why, why is Jesus weeping? It, it's a sign pointing to the deepest reality of the world. Death has a claim on you, and Jesus is not at peace with that claim. Jesus hates death. Jesus' great enemy is death and all that comes with it. So when Jesus sees death, he's like, it's worthy to weep over this. This is worthy to weep over. Death has come for us, and it's, it's worthy to be wept over. And this is the human condition. And we feel it, and we don't know what to do with it. And so some of the best stories we love and the stories we cling to and are motivated by and inspired by, they have this same theme. The best stories in the world, they reflect the gospel. There's conflict followed by sacrificial love followed by resurrection. Every story that puts tears in your eyes is that story because something inside of us knows that's the greatest story ever told. That's, that's the thing I was created for. When someone defeats death, you think, yes, that's the way it's supposed to be. I and my family have watched the movie Elemental twice in the theaters. So we are keeping the movie industry afloat around the Martin family. If you've seen the movie Elemental, it doesn't sound like many of you have seen it, but go watch it with this lens of conflict, sacrificial love, resurrection, and weep of the story of Jesus while you're watching this movie, Elemental. It's what I did. I encourage you to try it. Uh, it's, it's everywhere. And I don't know if you grew up and you weren't allowed to read this next series, uh, but this is very present in the classic book series called Harry Potter. If you didn't get to read that as a child because your parents weren't those kind of people, now that you're an adult, go read the books. It'll change your life. Let me give you the premise there is a dark wizard named Voldemort, he who must not be named. Voldemort has heard of the prophecies of a coming person who's, who's got all these promises on his life. So Voldemort, the master of the dark arts, goes to this place called Godric's Hollow to take on Harry Potter the infant and kill him before he's even old enough to fight him. And in so doing, he, he casts the most dreaded curse in the whole wizarding world, the deadly killing curse, and it is understood by everybody that a properly cast killing curse, it works every time. There's no way that it doesn't work. So if this, this curse is cast by the most evil wizard, then you, you stand no chance. But somehow when this curse is cast on this infant, it doesn't work. And not only does it not work, it backfires and kills Voldemort. And so to quote Hagrid, an incredible character in the story, when Harry gets older and he's at Hogwarts, he's famous. And he doesn't know why. And so Hagrid tells him, Harry, no one lived, no one lived once he who must not be named decided to kill him. No one lived once he who must not be named decided to kill him. That's why you're famous, Harry. And Harry's nickname was the boy who lived. That's what he was called around the school. And this single story becomes a beacon of hope for all people under the fear of Voldemort. Because for the first time ever, there's something more powerful than the killing curse on the table. 
There's something more powerful than Voldemort on the table. And later you find out what actually saved Harry was what? The sacrificial love of his mother. That she shielded him from the killing curse. She laid down her life to make him safe. Sacrificial love can defeat death. There is a theme in the human heart buried in our bones. We read that and you go, that's the way it's supposed to be. And if you're not Harry Potter people, just remember the movie Frozen 1, where Elsa is about to die, but Anna runs over and stands in her place and takes the sword in her stead. Conflict, sacrificial love, resurrection. And Olaf, the snowman, says only an act of true love can thaw a frozen heart. That's the gospel, my friends. (laughs) It's the gospel from a snowman. Buried in our bones is the hope that death doesn't have the final word. So when Peter goes to Tabitha and he tells her to get up, when Paul goes to that young man that fell out the window and tells him to get up, it's pointing to something available in the kingdom of God, that death does not have the final word. It can be reversed. And it can be reversed because something happened in a tomb in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago that changed the course of history. Yes, death has claim on you and me. Yes, we're not designed to make peace with death, but none of that is good news. The good news is the third point, which is death has no claim on Jesus. The central tenet of Christianity and what the New Testament calls impossible is not the resurrection of Christ. The New Testament never talks about the resurrection as though it was impossible. What the New Testament calls impossible is that the Son of God would lay down his life in our place. So so stay with me. Remember, the wages of sin is death. So any sinner, death has a claim on them. So the only way to defeat the power of death would to be sinless. And the only way to be sinless is to not be from the lineage of Adam. So you need someone who's born of a virgin, not connected to the lineage of Adam. Adam. You need them to then live perfectly, never sin. Then you need them to lay down their life in your place as the sacrificial atonement for your sins. And then they need to resurrect from the dead. And this is what you find in the story of Jesus. So Jesus does not have, death has no claim on him because he never sinned. And the wages of sin is death. And Jesus paid the wages of sin. So it would be impossible for him to stay dead. He can't stay dead. The resurrection is logical. If death has no claim on you, If the wages of sin is death and you just paid for the wages of sin, then you might as well start the clock because this brother's coming back from the dead because he has a power more powerful than death itself. The resurrection is actually logical. It was the death of the son that wasn't logical. And the apostle Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 when he talks about the resurrection. It's almost like a lawyer building his case. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 12 says this. But if it is preached that Christ is raised from the dead, how can someone say there's no resurrection from the dead? Right out of the gate, if then, if then, if then. If there's no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is useless and so is our faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we've testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. And those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this we have no hope in Christ, we are peoples uh, who are the most to be pitied. So Paul's like, if resurrection didn't happen in Christ, then it's sad, it's sorrowful, it's hopeless. There is nothing that's going to get us out of this alive. Verse 20. But, but God has indeed raised Christ from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. 
For since death came through one man, resurrection also comes from the dead through one man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all have been made alive. But each in his turn, Christ the firstfruits, then he who comes to those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom of God, uh, kingdom of God to the Father after, he, after he's destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. But he must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. Verse 26, the last enemy to be defeated is death itself. So church, the hope of the world is that Christ is not just victorious over death for himself. He was victorious over death for us. That he is the first fruits of the resurrection. He is the proof that God has raised Christ from the dead and in so doing he has raised everyone who is under the curse of death. The first Christians were so moved by this they took worship from Saturday and moved it to Sunday because they're like, this is now the Lord's day. Sunday is the resurrection day. It is the new Sabbath. It's the new guarantee that we will have the eternal shalom of God. If Christ has been raised, then we will be raised as well. And this is an exclusive promise of Jesus. Nobody else promises this. And this is not only a promise of Jesus, this is also something Jesus paid for. And this is where Christ starts to stand alone from every other religious leader. I do not have time to walk you through historical, religious, influential leaders and how every single one of them died at an old age, surrounded by their disciples with lives full of success and prosperity. Every single one of them claiming afterlife promises did so from the tower of religious philosophy. And Jesus alone is the young man who dies outside the city forsaken by everyone because he doesn't just promise resurrection. He has to pay for resurrection. He has to do something to make this possible. Every other religious leader can can promise something, but they have nothing to prove that it's possible. Death demanded a payment, and you couldn't pay, and I couldn't pay. And Jesus says, I'll, I'll do it. I'll pay it in their place. First Peter 2, 24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed. That is the eternal promise of Christ, the eternal payment of Christ, the eternal victory of Christ, and it is now offered to us. And this is the great news of Christianity, that Jesus defeated death once and for all. He defeated death once and for all. This means I don't have to go in the hallway and turn on the air conditioner anymore. This means I don't have to be afraid. This means you don't have to be afraid. It means that we have someone with power who saw us in our hopeless state and intervened for us, sacrificially loved us, and then resurrected in our place. It means that the cross was the victory and the resurrection is vindication. It's so hopeful, but it's also, it's also a crossroads. It's also filled with tension, because here's the tension. Biblically, you're either dead in your sin or you're alive in Christ. You're either dead in your sin, which you were born in, or you are alive in Christ. The truth is, outside of Jesus, there is existence, but there is no life. You can have the greatest existence in the world and still have no life if you're dead in your sins. But you can come to him now, be in Christ and experience eternal life now. This is what the resurrection is all about. It's proving the claim that you've been invited to the table. You don't have to be defeated by death anymore, and that can start today. 
This is the glorious truth of Jesus. It's a bold claim, but Christ is saying, I am the only one that has life. Everything outside of me is death. What a powerful claim. But that was not proclaimed from an ivory tower of religious philosophy. That was proclaimed in a life that was broken on our behalf and paid for. A death that was paid for in our place. And that should move us. And if that is true, if I were to act like Paul, if then, if then, if that is true, then that means there is a waterfall of truth available to us. And here's the glorious promise of the resurrection, that everything dead can be made alive again. Everything dead can be made alive again. If death has been defeated, then that means addiction can be defeated. That means sorrow can be defeated. Despair can be defeated. Injustice can be defeated. Everything can be defeated. If death itself is no longer the great enemy, that means everything is now possible to be renewed because of what Christ has accomplished. It means your marriage can be resurrected. And you're like, oh, I don't know, you haven't met my spouse. No, Tabitha was dead, and she got up, so I don't need to meet your spouse. There is a power available to resurrect dead marriages. There is a power available to resurrect broken relationships. Whatever you're experiencing with one of your kids that is broken, it, it can be resurrected. We have promise of that. Your enemies don't have to be your enemies anymore. Your family legacy doesn't have to be your family legacy anymore. You can love your neighbor now, even though they broke the fence and have a dog that won't stop barking. Like, you can do that now. You can wait in line at Starbucks and have the shalom of God. It's possible. I know you're like, Josh, this is crazy now. Like, this is crazy talk. You can experience the joy that your enemies don't have to be your enemies. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and 6, the Apostle Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. That's, that's a fine translation, but even, even a little bit more nuanced translation is if anyone is in Christ, new creation. Everything's new. Everything is new. The kingdom will one day make all things new, but right now you can experience the all things new of the kingdom because death has been defeated. Anything can be resurrected. You're not done. Nothing dead has to stay dead. So what in your life have you given up on? There is a power to reverse whatever that is. Because in death, Jesus defeated death. And you don't have to fight it anymore. So I go back to me as a little kid, and I I was worried about death. And now as an adult, what do I do? I, I trust the promises of Christ in the face of death. And this is what the Apostle Paul teaches. He, he says, to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. And what's fascinating about the New Testament is the New Testament doesn't say believers die. It says they fall asleep. All throughout the remainder of the New Testament, believers don't die anymore. They go to sleep. To those who have fallen asleep, this is the most assuring language imaginable. The believers, you don't, death is in your past. You'll never die. And when death comes for you, it'll just be sleep. It'll be re-entering the shalom of God eternally. And then ultimately, we will be in the new heavens and the new earth, and it's glorious, and we're not there yet, but it's on the way. And in the meantime, we have great hope. And so something we do in the meantime is we celebrate in rhythms different things. And one of those things is communion. So once a month as a church, we take communion, and we take the bread, and we take the, the juice, and we remember that Christ's body was broken and his blood was spilled on our behalf. And so this morning, the band's going to come out. We're going to sing together and worship. And here's what I want us to do. Twofold. We're going to take communion remembering 
that death had a claim on me that's been paid for. That this, this bread and this juice represent that I'm no longer under the power of death. And I celebrate that and I rejoice in that and I, I have hope in that and praise God. And then from that, you can move to the application that says, if that's true, then whatever I'm experiencing in my life that is dead doesn't have to be dead anymore. And you apply faith to that thing that feels dead. You apply faith. You apply prayer. You go, God, I, my prayer life is dead. Like, resurrect my prayer life. God, resurrect my budget. God, resurrect my schedule. God, resurrect my job. God, resurrect my car. Like, like truly, like, my car needs a resurrection, God. I don't know if that's on the table. But anything apparently is on the table if Christ has been raised. So take this and apply it. Church, the resurrection of Christ was not designed to be celebrated one time on Easter when you wear pink. It was meant to be applied to your everyday life. We are to be resurrection people who live with resurrection hope. So we want to practice that this morning. Now by way of instruction, the way we'll take communion so no one gets frustrated is you'll come down forward this way and then you'll walk back that way to your chair. And we're not going to take communion together this morning. We're going to give you a chance to do it alone. Whenever you're ready, come down. Take the elements. Go back to your chair. Pray. Thank God for what he's done for you, what he's achieved for you in Christ. Thank him. Celebrate communion. Then apply that to something in your life that feels dead. Apply that when you can. Move that towards something that feels dead in your life. And by his grace and faith, experience that. So that, that's the movement that's going to be available to us this morning. And my hope is that you'll experience the power of the resurrection right now. In faith, you'll experience it. And it will bring you great joy to say, God, I trust you in this. Now, if you're here and you're not a believer in Christ, this is something that's designed for a believer. If you haven't yet trusted Christ's promise, then it's a little out, you know, off-putting to, to do the practices of Christ. But if you say, man, I'm, I'm working to trust in Christ, I want to trust in Christ, then you're invited to celebrate communion with us. So I'm going to pray, and the band's going to come out. And by God's grace, we can become resurrection people. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for your promise. We thank you for your goodness. God, this morning, I, I pray that we would apply this stuff to our lives. That the resurrection wouldn't just be this faraway promise. But God, I pray the resurrection would be something we apply right now. So Lord, help us. Help us have things that come to our mind that are dead and need to be brought back to life. And God, if we're here and we've never trusted Christ, we've never believed in Christ, we've never surrendered to Christ, maybe this morning we do that for the first time. And we say, I don't want to be dead in my sins. I want to be alive in Christ. And maybe this morning we celebrate communion as an act of our first obedience to Christ. As an act of our first belief in Christ. But Lord, my prayer is that your spirit would move among us right now in power. And that your church would experience the hope of the resurrection. We pray all of that in Jesus' name. Amen.